Are you interested in a fast way to become a better, safer rider? Today, five keys from the Smith system. And after that, do you have what it takes to ride to the top of the world as far as you can get? You should know after you hear this episode. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Len Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Whether you're riding your motorcycle or even driving your car or truck, the five keys for safe driving with the Smith system that we're going to tackle next should help make you a safer rider and driver. My name is Sean Kitchen. I'm a career truck driver by trade. I've been riding motorcycles ever since I was a little kid. I've been in commercial vehicles since 1998. Uh, In addition to being a commercial driver, I've also worked in management as a recruiter and a classroom instructor and also ran an orientation and training department for a national trucking company. And uh, that's where I learned about this this program called the Smith System that is widely used in trucking. Uh, But the more I uh, started learning about the Smith System, the more I realized it had a lot of really positive applications for motorcycling as well. Sean, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Well, let's talk about motorcycles first because you're a motorcycle rider. What are you riding? Currently, I ride some old iron, a 1984 GL1200 Goldwing Aspencade. And what sort of trips do you do with that? Well, uh, so far I've not made any outside of the U.S., but I have visited at last count, I want to say, 18 
different states. I worked it out on a map one time. I want to say 18 states. I've been as far west as Texas, as far north as Michigan, as far south as Florida, and as far east as the ocean. You're a commercial truck driver. Mm -hmm. How many miles have you driven now without any sort of accidents? Over 1 million. So 1 million miles. That's a lot of miles. Yeah, it takes a few years to get to that point. And I, I've got the sore rear end to prove it. <laughs> and you attribute this Smith system to your success, or at least part of it to your success in accident-free driving. Exactly, I do. Uh, it's a, a system that I learned about fairly early on in my trucking career. And the, the funny thing about it is that the, the principles that make up the Smith system aren't really anything that's new thinking so much as it's a nicely organized way to think about it. So talking about the Smith system then, where does that come from? Well, the, the Smith system was developed in, I want to say 1952, if my memory serves. Um, it was developed during the later World War II era when uh, a lot of the able-bodied men were overseas fighting the war and a lot of uh, a lot of young people were coming into age uh, to drive cars and uh, women were taking a more active role uh, working outside of the home uh, you know taking care of more home responsibilities during the war uh, and it was developed by a man who was looking for uh, a way to teach people uh, how to drive safely uh, a lot of people are familiar with defensive driving techniques. That's a phrase that, that people have heard of a lot. The Smith system is what we refer to as space cushion management driving. Uh, it's, it doesn't have the emphasis on being defensive, reacting to things that are happening to you. It's all about being proactive and about paying attention to your placement in relation to the other vehicles and objects around you. So that's, that's what sets it apart, and that's what I think makes it particularly valuable to motorcyclists. So the Smith system is, is sort of the, broken down into these five main areas that we're going to talk about in a minute. Why do you think that they are so applicable to motorcyclists? Well, the emphasis on Smith system is about managing your space, it's not a reactive system. It's a proactive system. And what I think makes it particularly useful to motorcyclists and, you know, anybody who's ever ridden a motorcycle understands this, you don't have any protection. I mean, you have safety gear. You have a helmet. You have a jacket, boots, gloves. But all of, all of that gear that you can wear is something that, minimizes the damage to you once you found yourself in an incident. You know, wearing a helmet doesn't make you safe. It helps protect you when things have gotten unsafe. To me, the beauty of the Smith system is that it's, it's a way to address the fact that you don't have a protective cage around you. You don't have the frame and bodywork of a car so your only real tool to help keep you safe is learning how to manage 
your your situation, learning how to manage your placement amongst other vehicles. It's a it's a very proactive way of thinking ahead and anticipating the things that might be happening to you and learning how to put yourself in a better position so that you never have to use all of that expensive safety gear that you're wearing. Well, and naturally, this is a whole course that would take a lot longer than we're going to spend on it here. But let's go through those five keys. Can we do that? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, the, the whole Smith system methodology is built around what they call the five keys. They're, they're like five principles. Um, I'll just list them all real quick for you, and then, then we can go into each one separately. Key number one, aim high in steering. Key number two, get the big picture. Key number three is keep your eyes moving. Key number four is leave yourself an out. And key number five is make sure they see you. Now, if you take the first letters of each of those five keys, you get A, G, K, L, and M. And the way I like to remember it, and uh, some people get a kick out of this, I remember it as Alaskan girls kiss like moose. (laughs) A-G-K-L. That's that's not what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. I I thought you had one was something like all all good kids like milk is what I remember. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the the one that the Smith System people would prefer that you remember. (laughs) But to me, any memory tool that helps you remember it is a good memory tool. Of course. You know, so if people remember Alaskan girls kiss like moose. Ah, that's funny. I'll remember that. Well, let's jump into these five keys. The, the first one, aim high in steering. What is that? Yes, that is about looking further down the road. You know, if, if you think about wildlife, an animal's vision is tailored to its own particular needs. You know, that's why I say an eagle can spot a mouse in a field a half a mile away and a turtle can only see about six feet in front of them. Uh, you know, as human beings, we've been given the ability to see very far. And yet, how many times have you seen people, or, or maybe you've even caught yourself doing it, you'll be out for a ride and before you know it, you're not looking any farther than about 20 feet in front of you. So the, the purpose behind key number one, aim high in steering, is to get you to lift your gaze and be looking further down the road than what's right in front of you. And the, the Smith system teaches you should be looking about 15 seconds in front of you. So if you're cruising down a, a paved road at 60 miles an hour, that's a quarter of a mile. You'll, you'll cover a quarter of a mile in 15 seconds. And the value in lifting your eyes and looking further down the road is that you're never caught by surprise. You won't suddenly find yourself thinking, holy cow, the bridge is out, because you will have seen it coming. Yeah, you've already spotted it. You've thought about your reaction. Your peripheral vision is, is tracking as it comes up to you. Exactly. You know, you've given yourself time to react. And the, the way that you can practice this is, and, and it works at any speed. You know, you, I'm not saying look a quarter mile down the road in all circumstances, because depending on where you are, you might not be able to. But the way you can practice it is while you're riding, look at a spot 
down the road somewhere, you know, pick that yellow building down there and just start counting off a thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, thousand four. If you get to that object before you get to a thousand fifteen, then that should tell you you weren't looking quite far enough down the road. Pick something further away. You know, but if you look way down the road and it takes you a 30 count to get there, well, you're not doing anything bad. You're, you're looking way down the road now. But, you know, practicing that will help you get a sense for how far down the road is 15 seconds. Because in 15 seconds, you have plenty of time to react. You can bring your bike to a complete stop in 15 seconds. You can choose an alternate route around an obstacle in 15 seconds. You know, you can that, – that time gives you the ability to make a different choice proactively rather than reactively. If you're looking 15 seconds or so down the road, whatever you're seeing, you're going to come in contact with that. You're going to come into proximity with that in a fairly short period of time, you know, about 15 seconds. So the, the purpose is really not to, to help you get into a thousand yard stare and forget what's happening close to you. It's about lifting your, your gaze up enough and looking far enough down the road, far enough down the trail that you're not getting caught by surprise by the things that you're encountering. You know, you're giving yourself ample time to react to it. And that's really the key to it. It's all about giving yourself that time to react. And the reason you're saying time and not distance is because as you increase or decrease speed, um, that distance will change. That's it is exactly correct. At 60 miles an hour, um, 15 seconds is a quarter of a mile. At 30 miles an hour, 15 seconds is only an eighth of a mile, only half the distance. But our reactions remain at the same speed, regardless of our speed. So in other words, if we're doing it 30, we're going to react at the same speed. In other words, lifting a foot and hitting the brake in a car or, or reaching forward and, and, and grabbing your front brake and, and easing on your back brake on your motorcycle. All that's going to happen at the same speed, whether we're doing 10 mile an hour, or whether we're doing 100 mile an hour. That's correct. You're right on the money. Okay, so that's aim high. So that's the first one. The mm-hmm. next one is get the big picture, the acronym G. What is get the big picture? That deals with uh, learning how to distinguish between relevant objects and non-relevant objects. What I mean by that, Jim, is this. Let's say you're riding in town and you're approaching a four-way intersection with traffic lights. And you've got buildings on all four corners of that intersection. So those buildings are what you would call a non-relevant object. But let's say at that intersection, there's a car uh, waiting for a green light to go across the intersection. And as you look at that car, you see that those wheels are slightly turned to the left. And that person's got a smartphone in their hand and they're busy staring at a smartphone screen. And I guess even with more common things, like if, if, you know, if you see a car parked on the side of the road, that could be an irrelevant object. But if there's a a person in the driver's seat, it all of a sudden becomes more of a relevant object. Exactly. Or if you're going down the road and there's a a curb cut 
at the road because it, it, that's an entrance into a parking lot and there's a car sitting at the exit of that parking lot, that's a potentially relevant object. Um, pedestrians crossing the sidewalk, um, that's a potentially relevant object. Other vehicles, how many times have you been going down the road and somebody is in the turn lane on your left and then all of a sudden at the last minute they realize, oh, wait, I don't want to turn left. I want to turn right. And they cut three lanes of traffic right across the front of you. Mm, yeah. With motorcyclists, I mean, we all know that people will look right at you often and pull out because, and I think that goes to exactly what we're talking about. In their perspective, you're not a relevant object to them. They're, they're looking for cars. Exactly. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Jim. I've been in commercial vehicles, transportation and logistics for almost 20 years now. And I swear that the average motorist is incapable of seeing two very particular things out on the road. They can't see 70-foot-long semis, and they can't see motorcycles. And I don't know why that is. It's, it's almost as if the average motorist mentality is geared for somebody driving something very similar to what they're driving. So how do we get the big picture? Key number two, get the big picture, ties in very nicely with key number three, which is keep your eyes moving. The biggest thing about getting the big picture is that you you constantly need to be reevaluating the the situation that you're in, uh, especially when riding a motorcycle, because uh, like we mentioned earlier, you don't have the bodywork of a four-wheeled vehicle protecting you. You only have you and, and your brain and your, your safety gear that you're wearing. And so you can never allow yourself to get complacent in your riding, which I know is very easy to do. I mean, imagine that it's a nice, sunny Saturday afternoon. It's uh, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius. You're taking a nice cruise down the road and you know, the engine's just humming underneath you and you get almost kind of hypnotized into a nice little road trance and you're just kind of letting the miles go by and you're not moving your head around very much. Now, that's not getting the big picture. Getting the big picture means that you need to be constantly taking in new information. You need to be actively engaged and thinking about, okay, I'm coming up to an intersection. What do I see here? Okay, I'm going around a corner. Is this an increasing radius corner or decreasing radius corner? What is the road condition? Is there loose gravel on this paved road? Do I see signs that maybe a tree has fallen on this dirt road somewhere, maybe just around this corner? Uh, you know, it, it's about remaining engaged in that moment and not allowing your mind to drift off to the bills that you have to pay or the, the fight that you had with your spouse or significant other an hour before or, you know, all the other things that can distract our mind away from what we're doing right in that moment, which is riding the motorcycle. 
So number two, get the big picture, draws from number three, keep your eyes moving. So we've sort of moved into number three, uh, the K. So we've got A-G-K. K K is keep your Mm -hmm. eyes moving. um, And that's helping you get the big picture, as you're saying there. I guess one of the other things that keeping your eyes moving will do is, is prevent you from doing target fixation. That's right. And you said the the magic words just a moment ago when you talked about your peripheral vision. Now, for for those who have maybe never heard that particular phrase before, your peripheral vision is the aspect of your vision that allows you to see motion and, and maybe even color distinction way out to the sides of your vision. You know, your your peripheral vision extends almost 180 degrees out to either side. Now, you're not going to read a book, you know, way out to the side, but you can sense things moving around you. That's what your peripheral vision is for. But a lot of people don't realize that if you're uh, if you fix your gaze on a fixed object directly in front of you within about eight to ten seconds you're going to lose the majority of your peripheral vision. That's what we call tunnel vision. Uh, You know, you lose that ability to really distinguish the things that are going on around the sides of you. And the only way that you can keep your peripheral vision engaged, you know, charged up, working correctly, is to constantly keep looking at different things. You know, as you keep your eyes moving, key number three, you're keeping your peripheral vision at at maximum capacity, so to speak. And you know, and, and you're never allowing something to sneak up from you on the sides, you know, without you seeing it. So number three is keep our eyes moving. How do we do that though? Are we are we moving from one side to the other? Is there a method for it for the amount of sweeps or distance we're covering with our eyes? Well, I'll tell you the system that I've used is I'm looking in my rearview mirrors every five to eight seconds. You know, I'm never allowing my gaze to stay right in front of me. Uh, so I'm constantly moving from, say, you know, I'll, I'll take a, a look in the left mirror and then I'll look back in front of me for a few seconds. And then I'll take a look in the right mirror. And then I'll look back in front of me for a few seconds. Next time, I might even turn my head and look past my mirror just to make sure that something didn't sneak up in my blind spot. And then I'll look back up in front of me again. And then I'll maybe turn and look on the other side, make sure something didn't sneak up behind me in my blind spot. You know, it's just about the physical action of moving your eyes from one place to another. So we're aiming high, we're getting the big picture, we're keeping our eyes moving, and you said that moves mm-hmm. right into the next one, which is leave space. Key, key four, leave yourself and out. And that has to do with the awareness of your space relative to other obstacles. You know, whether those obstacles are cars boulders, other motorcyclists, buildings, you know, a river, you name it. Uh, When people don't pay attention 
to what's going on around them. And when they don't leave themselves an exit strategy for the situation they found themselves in, that's when an accident can happen. It's almost like a high action, high stakes chess game, isn't it? You know, I think sometimes when people think of riding safely, they almost picture it being boring, but it's really kind of the opposite. When you start to go through this and you realize all the things you're doing, these are things that are not only going to keep you safer, but they're also going to keep you alert and they're, they're going to make the, uh, they're going to keep your, your mind stimulated. Exactly. That's a, a fantastic analogy that you used of the chess player. I've said for many years I think there are two basic types of people in the world. There's proactive chess players and reactive chess players. Now, some people, when they play chess, if they don't know the game very well, have never spent much time with it, they find themselves just reacting to whatever their opponent, uh, whatever move their opponent made. The best chess players are the proactive chess players who are thinking two, three, four, five moves down and anticipating the things that might happen to them. And so they're developing strategies to deal with them. So that analogy that you just used, Jim, is a fantastic analogy. You really need to think in in a lot of ways of riding a motorcycle as a three-dimensional chess game. And it's you against the world, so to speak. So we're coming up to the last one now. We started off with aim high and steering. Then we went to get the big picture, keep your eyes moving, leave yourself an out. And now this one is make sure they see you. What is that? Yep. That's all about high visibility and high situational awareness for the other people. Uh, Earlier you talked about Uh, how uh, people often don't see motorcyclists because maybe there's just a single headlight and and they don't perceive that vehicle the same way that they would a car or because a bike is smaller, maybe they think that the bike is further away than a car would be at at that same position. You know, who who knows? There could be a hundred different reasons why people don't perceive a motorcyclist in the same way that they might perceive another vehicle. But it's your job as the motorcyclist to make sure that they see you. And there's a couple ways that you can do it. A lot of riders are already familiar with the high visibility gear. You know, the bright yellow helmets, the bright yellow jackets, shoot the bright yellow motorcycles, the headlight modulators, you know, things like that. Um, You know, those are all good ways to help increase your visibility. Um, There are other things that you can do. I'm a big fan of additional lighting. Uh, You know, there are a lot of really great uh, high power LED auxiliary lights on there. You know, I'm between two uh, auxiliary driving lights and a central headlight, you've created a nice big conspicuous triangle of light that is very good at catching people's attention. I've seen a lot of people with big touring bikes that run headlight modulators that during the day they flash the, the high between high beam and low beam. Um, that's very effective at getting people's attention. I've seen it happen before. Um, in addition to that, I'm also a fan of the loudest possible horn you can put on your motorcycle. 
uh, especially a, a good, what they call a dual tone horn, where it has a high tone and a low tone that are designed to be very obnoxious sounding together. Uh, you know, a good loud horn can be a very effective tool for helping make sure that other people see you. It's not about making other people angry. It's just making them aware that you're there and look for that eye contact with people. You can very clearly see when someone is looking at you. Use that horn. Use those lights. Get people to turn their head and look in your direction. Make sure they see you. And if that means that you got to slow down a little bit to give yourself a little bit more time for them to react, then go ahead and slow down. You know, and Jim, I've listened. I'm very proud to say this. I've listened to every episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and I have never heard a single episode of Adventure Rider Radio where someone said, you know what, my trip got a whole lot better when I went faster. Without exception, every person who's ever brought up the topic on ARR has always said that their trip got better when they slowed down. So, you know, why would we not use that as just kind of a standard operating procedure for riding a motorcycle? Slow down a little bit. Give yourself time to react. Give other people time to react. You know, aim high in steering. That's about giving yourself time to react. Get the big picture. That's about learning what to react to. Keep your eyes moving is about making sure that you're seeing everything that you need to react to. Uh, leave yourself an out is about making sure that you have the enough room to react to the things happening around you. And make sure they see you is about getting the other motorists' attention. And slow down a little bit if you need to. Give them time to react as well. It's the only defense that we have on a motorcycle is space and time. And I guess one of the other things as far as making sure they see you, you can actually move yourself around in your lane, do things like that to make sure that you're more visible rather than just staying in that one spot. Exactly. Uh, You are absolutely right. I've seen a lot of people who uh, will stay on the right side. Let's say you're going down a two lane road, you know, one lane each direction. I've seen a lot of riders who, for reasons that I don't understand, will always stay off to the curb. Well, for one, you're not giving yourself an out on the right side if you're already riding on the curb. And two, I think it it affects other motorist perceptions of where you are. A-G-K-L-M. Aim high in steering. Get the big picture. Keep your eyes moving. Leave yourself an out and make sure they see you. Five great keys for us as motorcyclists. Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure being on. Sean Kitchen is a certified Smith System driver trainer, and he's a commercial driver with over a million miles accident-free under his belt. Those five keys, by the way, will be in our show notes. Well, what's it like to drive to the top of the world? And do you have what it takes to do it? Well, you be the judge. Coming up in just a second. Stay with us. Look, there's no doubt that a wider foot peg is going to improve your riding abilities. 
It allows you to transfer your weight better, balance, and even the traction between your foot and the pedals. So at this point, the question is which peg to choose? Well, I want you to go to www.imsproducts.com. IMS is a well-known name in the race industry, and for good reason. When they get into manufacturing something, they sort of take it to the next level. They make these incredibly high-quality pegs that are specifically made for adventure motorcycles. From their core to the rally to the ADV-1 and the ADV-2, pegs designed for modern adventure motorcycles. They're the pegs that I'm using now. Visit them at www.imsproducts.com. And when you do, be sure to tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The Dalton Highway in Alaska will take you about as far north as you can get in North America. But if you want to ride this road, the Dalton, you're going to need a plan. There was one time I was riding along and I was in one of those chip seal uh, sections where the mud puddles get pretty big and it had been raining uh, a lot and every mud puddle was completely full of water. And uh, a semi was coming the other way towards me and I crossed with it and it hit that mud puddle full on and sent it right into me. Not only did it send water up under and in my face mask, but also gravel. And as the gravel was streaking its way down the inside of my uh, visor, I I just started to laugh. I thought, this is not a Sunday ride. Phil Freeman was born and raised in Alaska. He's the founder of MotoQuest, a motorcycle tour and rental company. And one of the trips that MotoQuest offers is riding the Dalton Highway, the road that leads to the top of the world. The Dalton gets you as far north as you can get. It's essentially riding through wilderness. It is so wild out there. That's Phil Freeman. He loves the road, the Dalton, for many reasons. For instance, the scenery. You pass the last tree. The wildlife. Seeing hundreds of caribou just walking right down the road. But the Dalton isn't for everyone because it can be difficult, sometimes really difficult, according to Phil. There's the mud. There's a lot of mud, okay, sometimes. Insects. Bring your mosquito net. And because it's essentially a commercial traffic route that gets supplies to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, traffic, when you come upon it, can be a problem. All of a sudden, there's two semis uh, at opposite directions hauling as fast as they can towards you, and now you have a bike out there and there's no way that they're going to fit. And after you've made it through all the mud, the bugs, cold and industrial traffic, you get to take a tour, snap some photos and do it all again in the other direction. Uh, My name is Philip Freeman. I am the founder of a motorcycle tour and rental company called MotoQuest. Uh, I was born in Alaska and have traveled extensively. And I think that motorcycling and travel weaved its way into what I do today. Phil, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You didn't start out a motorcyclist. I think you started out doing something else. You were a teacher before, were you? 
Oh, geez. I uh, had many hats. I was always in and out of the tour business, much like yourself, uh, doing sea kayak guiding, r- river raft guiding. I always wanted to be a fly fishing guide. That was my goal, actually. Uh, but, you know, as life hands you uh, certain opportunities, I had a chance to live abroad uh, in high school in Brazil as a rotary exchange student. And my father was a part of Rotary. He gave me the application. I filled it out. And I didn't know where Brazil was, but I knew I was going there for a year as a 16-year-old. And I can tell you that really just changed the way I looked at the world. Uh, When I came back, all I wanted to do, I looked at the globe. Where do I go next? How do I get there? Uh, So that part of that element of it, the travel was great. But uh, I never got into motorcycling uh, until later in life. Uh, I I found myself in Japan teaching English. Uh, I was on the northern island of Hokkaido. Uh, I saw dozens of motorcyclists with backpacks on the back going by my little uh, town in the country. And I thought, geez, I want to be a part of that. Uh, So I purchased a motorcycle uh, from a fellow teacher and spent weeks on the road uh, exploring Hokkaido, which I found was really the epicenter for motorcycle touring for Japanese. And uh, there was something, you you know what it is when you're on the road uh, for an extended amount of time, uh, something magic happens on day four. There's just, it seems day four for me. It's like you're just in the rhythm and you're looking at a map in the morning and you realize that you have all this area that you could explore. And uh, I realized, geez, this is really what I want to do. How do I how do I manifest this into not only a career, but uh, how do I bring it to other people that are uh, un, that they don't know about this feeling, this feeling of freedom? You really nailed it there when you're saying day four. There is something about, it, isn't there? There's something about even if you only have a, a like a short length of time, which most of us do. You know, you might have two weeks or ten days or something like that. There's something about you when you fall into that rhythm. You know, day three, day four, you start to fall into rhythm. You get up in the morning. It is the most amazing feeling ever. Yeah, I try to explain it to people that are, you know, a lot of people are shy about motorcycles. They call them dangerous. They they're on they don't know. And I ask them, have you ever been on a one week trip? Usually the answer is no. And a lot of motorcyclists who are lifelong motorcyclists have never been on a one week trip. Usually it's a parade around the town and then maybe for the weekend, but not for an extended period of time. So I try to explain to them you know, imagine yourself buying the least expensive yacht in the world, uh, which is a motorcycle, maybe a KLR 650, and then start slicing through continents at weeks at a time if you want, because that's what you're literally doing. You're sailing the world at a very inexpensive rate, and you're meeting people along the way, and you're as, you get to experience as much solitude as you want as well. It's, I don't know how you can – I grew up skiing – uh, and it's like skiing the world. That's what it's like. It's hard to explain it to somebody who hasn't done it, but it, as you would know, it, it's extremely addicting. Yeah, there, there's something about the transition, like you're saying, about that short rides that you do, you know, around home, even for a day or something. There's something about that transition for that longer trip that is that is just magic. I, I mean, I just love it, and I, I would highly encourage anyone who hasn't done it before to uh, to find a way to do it. Absolutely. I wish everybody at least did it once to see if they liked it or not. I think, frankly, most people are afraid because they know they would love it. That's a very good possibility. Now, you left Japan. Well, you're, you're a teacher in Japan. You sort of have a career there. Why would you think about doing something else? Oh, that was basically a, 
it was a limited time um, commitment. It was a three-year program. Uh, and so after the three years, I, you know, I uh, started to look at what I would do when I got back from Japan because it, it was very much a limited time uh, deal. I loved my time there. Uh, it was a challenging to live there, especially learning the language and, and all that. Uh, but I, I always had my sights on coming back to Alaska. And I just didn't know uh, what I was going to do. Uh, I had, you know, uh, graduated from university and I had a lot of ideas. And I have a spirit of entrepreneurialism that's running right through both sides of my family. So I knew I was going to start a business. I just didn't know what. And I was, had my sights on fly fishing. I wanted to, you know, run a lodge. That's what I really wanted to do. But then that fourth day happened on that motorcycle, that Honda. <laughs> uh, and uh, I kick-started it one morning and I was going down the road on, you know, during that week. And I realized, how do I do this? So when I did uh, get back to the United States, I purchased a motorcycle sight unseen down in Portland, Oregon. And I rode back to Alaska through uh, Canada. And uh, if, it, it's hard not to fall in love with the road when you're, you're doing something like that. And, and then the, I think the seeds of, uh, moto quest were starting just then I was trying to figure out how to start this business. So you got into motorcycling, you speak Japanese that, that played a part. Uh, absolutely. I thought, uh, I had a couple contacts in Japan. Um, so I, tried to do Japanese uh, tours exclusively. Uh, and for the first three years, I had six and seven groups uh, sent to me by a, an operator in, in uh, Japan. I did camp tours. I did camp cooking. We uh, set up camps together. We broke them down. We <laughs> literally camped uh, on the side of the road in the wilderness some nights. It was a real experience for um, I guess because uh, Japan, it's really hard to get out in nature there like you can in Alaska. So it was a great experience. Uh, and it was fun except for it's like anything. Uh, there were too many moving parts in the world economy to be able to base yourself on just that. Uh, and so flights uh, changed, economies got worse, and things dried up in the Japanese market. So I started searching elsewhere. We're talking 1998. Yeah, 98, 99, yeah, 2000. And so from then you've expanded into how many, how many countries are you going to now? Uh, we're offering 20. Uh, we've been in 40 countries so far. We do custom trips. We have one in Thailand going on right now. At any given time, we have up to three to four uh, trips uh, happening simultaneously uh, on Earth somewhere. Well, what I wanted to talk to you about today was the Dalton Highway because I think you have a bit of an experience on this. Perhaps yes. Uh, I think I, I think I'm the guy that's been there more than anybody in the world. To be honest, well, except for the truckers that are running it. Well, I mean, on a motorcycle. Oh, right, of course, yeah. Yeah. So the Dalton Highway. I mean, it, it is a destination for people, isn't it? And it's kind of odd because it's a dead end. But um, a lot of people head for this as a riding destination. Why? Oh, why not? I think is the. Mo um, it's just, I, I think we're all a little bit in our DNA. Uh, we have this tendency to want to go to the end of the earth. Uh, and there is a road all the way up there to the Arctic Ocean. So really, the reason is why not? Okay, so what is the Dalton Highway? Let's just get an overview of it first. 
Okay, the Dalton Highway is an oil field servicing road that was put in, I think, the early 70s. Uh, public access was restricted. Uh, the, the oil company cited that the grade of the road was too steep and uh, the road wasn't in a condition that was okay for regular civilian traffic. So they used to stop traffic for just basic public at the Yukon Crossing or the Yukon Wood Plank Bridge, and they would turn you around there. Um, and then there was a court case, and uh, a local said, I think we do have access you know, rights to it, and they won the case. So they opened up 300 miles uh, all the way to the Arctic Ocean, almost to the Arctic Ocean, for public use. So that road actually started to exist uh, just recently, if you think about it in terms of a highway. Um, the Dalton Highway is 414 miles of paved uh, chip seal, which is a cheap sort of uh, pavement, uh, dirt, and then you always have your water truck and your greater truck working. And it is also trafficked by the ice road truckers. So when you're going up there and these people are riding fast and they're going to work and they're slinging mud and rocks uh, and in a wet conditions, um, it's a challenge to say the least. It, it can be really challenging. 414 miles, it's uh, 666 kilometers. And that's, uh, I think, from, from Living Good to Prudhoe Bay. Now, how much of that is sealed and how much of it is dirt? It's about 50-50. Uh, there are sections that are uh, actually fairly good pavement, uh, but the winter uh, over the years has its way with the you know, we call them frost heaves, uh, where you have the freeze and thaw, and it tends to buckle and be uh, you know it could be challenging in its own right. And then the chip seal is another type. I wouldn't call that pavement, but it, it's just a it's a try at being asphalt. But the problem is, is those trucks. If you have a dime-sized hole develop in that surface, over time the trucks are going to rip it apart. So then you have bomb craters. Hmm. Okay. So, and is it just one stretch that that's paved, and, and then another is chip sealed, and another is gravel, or is it all mixed up? It's all mixed up. Oh, Sometimes great. you'll have 15 <laughs> miles of perfect pavement, and you wonder why did they haul their equipment all the way out here to do this? <laughs> and why did they? I don't know. They had a grand plan. They really wanted to pave this years ago, and they've been trying. But I think that they have resolved that it is less expensive, uh, and actually it's easier to maintain it with uh, calcium chloride and a dirt surface with calcium chloride on top, hmm. uh, which can make for sloppy conditions in the wet. But in dry conditions, uh, you're it's veritably uh, paved when you're riding along it. So a person, a rider, depending on what kind of weather window they hit, uh, could say that that ride was a piece of cake. Another one would say, I got a helivac out because I got on a soft shoulder and I got moved over by a sloppy truck and I couldn't see. So it depends on who you talk to and what conditions you have. It's just like climbing a, a mountain is what it's like. So you could ride up in ideal conditions and ride down in horrible conditions or vice versa. Absolutely. And I've met people from all over the world that have attempted this. And a lot of them uh, have a pretty good size ego on their shoulder and they think they can tackle everything because they've been everywhere. But the problem with the Dalton, I think the most dangerous element 
is that there are no places to stop. The sun does not go down. You feel obligated to keep going and you push your envelope. And I, a lot of people will leave, for example, from cold foot, uh, which is the last gas before the uh, Arctic Ocean, and they'll ride the 245 miles up there. The sun will not go down for another two months, and they feel they don't want to pay the $200 for particle board-sided uh, hotel rooms. Uh, so they turn around and they come back down the highway, and that's where they go off the road. They're just fatigued. They're tired. And, they're, and the thing is about the Dalton, the danger is the shoulder because the shoulder has three to four inches of sort of wet, sloppy mud or it can be soft. And as soon as you get into that, it doesn't matter who you are. It can spit you right out onto the tundra. Uh, and I've, had, I've seen it happen, and I've passed numerous wrecks of people with lots of experience because they were too tired, and they just drifted four inches a little bit too far to the shoulder. And then that's over. You've got a broken collarbone. You have a broken bike. Uh, it's, it's over. Your trip is over. Let's talk about why people go there. What's the scenery like? Uh, it's amazing. Um, it's wide open. There's uh, nobody. I think for me, it's the Brooks Range. Uh, it's an old mountain range that crisscrosses the northern part of the state. Uh, and once you start going up uh, Attigan Pass there, you pass the last tree. And on the other side, you have this velvety uh, green uh, expanse. And there's, it's just something about it. It's really hard to uh, ex, you know, explain it. It is so wild out there. Uh, I've come over the rise of, a, of the road and seen hundreds of caribou just walking right down the road. In fact, you're in their area. You, you just happen to be traveling through it. So I've, I've been riding through a group of caribou just to, you know, get, to get on. And that kind of stuff, it, it doesn't seem to exist in our West anymore. Uh, it's really unique. Now, you're saying when you go up Attigan Pass and you, you go past the tree line, you're talking about as you head north to the Arctic. Yes. Yeah, I would say that's my favorite part of the Dalton Highway. Yeah, that, there's just such a cool transition there. And that's where the trees stop and that's where you're into the tundra. Yeah, there's one tree with a sign on it that says last tree. And that's it, <laughs> folks. <laughs> and that's the, the highest uh, pass in Alaska. What is it? 4,740 feet, which would be 1,445 meters, roughly. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I... I I'm sorry I, I delved a little bit into, you know, the dangers of the Dalton, but I, I don't know if there's a, a more wild landscape that you can cut through uh, in North America with no uh, buildings, no infrastructure for hundreds, if not thousands of miles in all directions. It's, it's really, really unique. Like, like it's really spectacular, but what you're saying is really remote. There's no emergency services there along the road. Um, if you're stuck, you're going to depend on, on I guess, calling the, the trooper, state troopers. Yeah, you know, the ice road truckers, actually, they're very helpful and a lot of them ride. Uh, and if you're in trouble, they will slow down and they'll find out if they can help you. And they're in CB range of the next trucker. Uh, so they can get help to you faster than anybody, to be honest. So you're, you're not necessarily out there forever, but there are times where you are on your own. Um, you know, you could, uh, you get to see muskox, caribou, uh, doll sheep, and uh, 
you, sometimes you're the only uh, vehicle within sight for an uh, hour, an hour at a time. It ends a dead horse in Prudhoe Bay. What's there? Uh, a very interesting uh, conglomeration of moonscape buildings. Um, there, it's a workman's uh, base. Uh, most people are staying there for two weeks to three weeks on, three weeks off. No one really lives there. The only uh, full-time resident is the cat at the <laughs> hardware store. Uh, there's a gasoline station. There's a few hotels. But everything is generally to service the oil fields up there. And the lure uh, to go to the Arctic Ocean, you need to uh, call ahead and make it so that you go on a tour of a, a little bitty bus and they do a background check just in case. And it, uh, you have to supply your ID and they'll whisk you away. It's about seven miles to the coast and you get to stand right on the Arctic Ocean. Uh, but what you notice right away is this is a workman's place and there, it's a dry town. Uh, none of the workmen can drink. There's really no, there's one store and one hardware store, which I highly recommend because it's got everything you can imagine. Uh, but it's uh, very flat. Uh, all the buildings are uniform. And sometimes when you look around, you, you get disoriented just because there isn't really anything that distinguishes one part, one building from another. It's a, it's a fascinating dead end. What do you mean they do a background check? What do they check for? Uh, they just want to make sure that you're not into uh, any sort of activities that would threaten the pipeline. Now, that pipeline is a security zone. Oh, I see. But other than that, they run a tour. So, so there's really not much there. Is like, would you be able to stay there at one of the hotels? Sure. Uh, you want to call ahead. Sometimes there's no uh, occupancy, and sometimes there is. You do not want to sleep outside in your tent or whatever. Yeah, there's, it's not uncommon to have a warning that there's a bear in the parking lot. Uh, polar bears walk through there. Brown bears walk through there as if uh, it's wilderness, which it basically is. Uh, it's, and the, they're not giving it away. Usually it's about $250 a night. Uh, but it's better than uh, spending it out on the tundra. <laughs> mm. And that's, is that mainly because of the polar bears? Uh, you know, it's just there are critters out there and the elements. Uh, it's constantly windy. Uh, usually it's at or below freezing, even in the summer. Okay, well, let's sort of back up then and do a, a tip run here. And let's give people an idea of the things that they need to be aware of when they're going on this trip, if they want to do it. Okay, sure. Um, I would uh, equip my bike uh, with a fairly aggressive tire. Uh, you usually don't need it for most of the time, but the, the thing with the Dalton is there's constant road construction on it during the summer and everything is going great until you come around a corner and there's a water truck and there's a grader. And then all of a sudden you're into a lot of maybe even a mile, or even many miles of very soft, uh, riding. And so you want that knobby to have a little bit more bite uh, in the surface. It's just a little safer. I would suggest that people ride as light as possible. I know the world travelers have a tendency to pile up everything on their bike and have weight up high. And I would say be very careful to do that. Leave everything non-essential in Fairbanks and keep all of your heavy stuff as low as possible on your motorcycle. Uh, a lot of people like to wear, uh, ride the 1200 GS series or something a little bit bigger, and they're fine if you go in light, but 
I would say a, a 650 or 700 or 800 class motorcycle, a little bit lighter, is a little bit easier, maneuverable, and more forgiving uh, on that trip. And uh, if I was to, uh, you know, like um, there's a lot of mud, okay, sometimes, and the the trucks will kick this up. It's a mist, and it's got calcium chloride in it. It's unlike any surface I've ever seen of any road. And uh, when it gets onto your face mask, uh, it'll just glob on there. And when you try to rub it off, you can get it maybe one time with your glove. But the second time, you can't. You can't see anything. You literally can't. So uh, I have been t- – uh, I've tried several different things that work. Um, if you have like a thumb squeegee, that will work to keep your vision clear. Um, or having like a, a dry – clean rag close by like in your tank bag or something so you can just do a quick wipe uh these things are i you know vision is everything and these trucks that you're gonna want to pass them you can't just sit behind a mist making machine for an hour you need to get by them so there is a vision protocol that you should think about when you're uh riding this this road for the most part the road is in very good condition but you will like in the chipped seal areas you got to watch out for uh, large bomb crater sort of type of, of mud puddles and stuff like that. It's not a big deal, but you just want to try to avoid them. But as for uh, you know watching uh, wildlife hazard or anything like that, the vision from the roadside is very very broad. You can see uh, for miles, so you really don't have an issue with that. And there isn't a lot of traffic. But what I do warn people uh, about is to not get complacent. Uh, you'll see like a herd of caribou and you'll want to slow down and take a picture. And then you stop your bike, you're out on the middle of the road, there's nobody around, you get your camera out and then all of a sudden there's two semis uh, at opposite directions hauling as fast as they can towards you. And now you have a bike out there and there's no way that they're going to fit. And that's happened multiple times. And so what I say is if you see any uh, wildlife or if you want to stop and make pause, uh, just make doubly sure that you're off in a safe area because you never know when the ice road truckers are coming. They'll ride very, very fast and you got to watch them. As far as the, the bike goes, as far as the, the prepping of the bike, is there anything else that you can do to the bike to make it uh, you know, more suitable for this? I know the calcium chloride is, is absolutely horrible, but I don't know of any method to try and uh, prep your bike in advance. Is there? Oh man, I've heard of uh, using sort of a Teflon spray, uh, and I heard that worked okay. Like I haven't for a, a frying pan, you mean? Yeah, you you put it on your bike so that the uh, calcium chloride doesn't adhere to it or stick to it. Mm. Uh, but uh, you know, our bikes are never the same once we send them up there. Uh, it's just it's got a uh, you know a salty uh, base to it, and it'll eat into the metal of your bike. Uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, and it'll come back a little bit different. One thing you want to watch out for when, uh, you're riding up there, especially if you have an air cooled, uh, motorcycle is that that mud has a tendency to cake and then basically clog your air intake. Uh, so you want to be diligent about keeping that clear and it's hard, but you can find a hose in Prudhoe Bay. Uh, but you know, if you don't clear that out, you're going to see that your um, temperature meter is going to start to uh, skyrocket uh, because that it, once that mud starts to bake on your bike, it'll encrust it and actually 
now you have a new pottery uh, piece. <laughs> And it bakes on within hours. So, I mean, you can very well end up with a, a huge mess. You might want to think of things like uh, covers for your forks. That would be one that, that uh, would be helpful. And even um, a shield that you can take off, like a, like a sort of a mesh that you can put over your rat if you're running a, a water-cooled bike so you can easily clean it. I mean, would that help? Uh, absolutely. And we do that. Uh, and one other thing, you really do need a front fender. It'll stop that mud from being thrown out in front of you and then coming back into your face shield. Are you talking a low front fender or a high one or both? I just, uh, I would say just a low front fender, something to block that mud from creating off and getting shot out in front of you. You mentioned uh, the trucks going by and the rocks flying up. What about things like headlights? Yeah, definitely want to protect your headlight. Uh, You will get hit by rocks. Uh, And that's just, that's why I like to say it's no Sunday drive. Uh, you're setting yourself up for an achievement. Uh, you're not going there to relax at all. You're going for bragging rights for the rest of your life and something that you'll always remember. But every time you cross with one of those trucks, uh, they're throwing rocks. I've been hit. Uh, I like I like to duck behind the uh, windscreen. I've had my mirror taken out. I've, ha- I've heard of other people get hit. Uh, but you just need to keep that in mind. The trucks are in a hurry. They're going up to 80 miles an hour, especially if they're on their backhaul, and they're not going to slow down. And I've had them creep up behind me, and then they're going to pass. They, they're going to. And if you don't let them pass, you're going to hear about it in the parking lot in Coldfoot because they'll find you. <laughs> and they'll talk to other truckers about it too <laughs> because there's a lot of chatter between the truckers. Oh, this motorcyclist won't get out of my way. Uh, and you just want to kind of get over but not onto the soft shoulder and let them just – blast on by because that's what they're doing. But are they, uh, are they driving unsafe? I wouldn't say that. They're just, they're business. You know, uh, they're just, they're trying to get to one point to another as fast as possible. And it is a work road and you are in their environment. Hmm. So as far as rocks then, and, and we have to watch our headlights, I mean, everything. I was going to ask you, what sort of headlight protectors do you find work? I know they've got the, the stick-on ones, which I've never tried, that you put on your, right on the lens. And of course you can put mesh over it. Yeah, either one is not a cure-all. There's no silver bullet there. If you did both, I think you'd have your best chance. We used to use that stick on, you know, and it's a it's a fairly thick, rubbery uh, sort of uh, material. Mm-hmm. But we've still taken rocks and cr- crushed. A rock has penetrated and broken the headlight. Uh, the mesh works for the most part, but here again, you might have that rock that just makes it right through there uh, that gets it. But I, I think of the two, if you have a, a pretty uh, small pattern screen in front of your uh, headlight, I think that that's been working the best for us. Okay, so that's sort of the bike. What about the rider? Should we be wearing any special gear that we don't normally wear? Um, yeah, just protective gear. I always think, what do you want to be wearing when you come off the bike? Something with uh, shoulder pads, uh, elbow pads, knee pads. Uh, you know, you see a lot. A lot of uh, impermeable type gear. Uh, that stuff is really good up there. You will find that you're probably not layering down <laughs> while you're up there. So you can bring your cold suit. <laughs> you're always going to run into rain uh, unless you're very, very lucky. So prepare for that. Heated gear, I guess. Yeah, a lot of people use heated gear. Uh, there is a different climate once you get above Brooks Range. Uh, you are in the Arctic on those last 80 miles. We've had it that the temperature has dropped 50 degrees. Mm. 
Tell me um, you're kidding. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is worth it, right, Phil? I mean, we're supposed it, to want to go here. <laughs> oh, it is, it is absolutely worth it. I Trust me, I'll do it again in a heartbeat. I, I love it, but it, I just want to, you know, I've seen too many people unprepared up there. That's that's probably one of my biggest worries is to see somebody that's just not. I've seen bikes, not the right bikes up there. I've seen bikes abandoned up there. I've seen people off the side of the road trying to figure out their life, you know, after they've cartwheeled into the, the marsh. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just as long as you, uh, you know, just ride your own pace, be very safe, but use a safe bike as well. I, we used to use that KLR 650 from Kawasaki and what a forgiving motorcycle. It is really nothing to brag about, but when you get on the Dalton Highway, the suspension travel, the the way it's set up, it's more of a dirt bike than it is anything. It is one of the safest rides I can think of to go up that that highway. Mm. And now you do trips on the Dalton, do you? Yes. Yeah, we offer guided. We also send people up uh, with rentals. And and what bikes are you sending up now? No, uh, we send all kinds. It depends on the rider. We send the V-Stroms. They're doing fine up there. The okay, that's what I was curious about because you mentioned that some people abandon their bikes. I was, I was sort of trying to get a, an idea of what sort of bike do you see? I guess I should have said what sort of bike do you see as the ultimate bike other than the KLR? Uh, you know, like the uh, the BMW uh, F700 Twin is a good bike, although those rims are a little bit soft. Uh, they're alloy the 800 GS does very well. We're starting with the Africa Twin, which I think will be perfect for that trip. Uh, the 1200 GS BMW is good for that. Just be mindful of how you pack your bike. The problem with the GS is it invites you to put so much luggage on it, and you really shouldn't for that trip, for that um, that stint of the highway. Like you uh, said, you said leave the luggage in Fairbanks. Is that what you said? Yeah. There's an outfit uh, called Adventure cycle works and i believe they're still in business they're just north of fairbanks and this guy will change out your tires just for the dalton highway and you can store your luggage with him oh that's nice it's really nice and so it and it happens all summer long you this guy's a busy guy there's lots of people more and more each year going up that highway you said about camping, and I know you were talking up the end at Purdue Bay. Um, what about the whole way along? Would you recommend not camping, that you only stay in the accommodations? Well, I'm a camper. I love to camp, uh, and I would camp anywhere. A lot of people are worried about bears, but I'm, I'm more worried about Winnebago's uh, than anything, uh, if you want to talk about dangerous things. Um, the campgrounds, there's a fair amount of them all the way up, and there's a great resource to find them. There's this... Uh, there's this magazine, or it's a, well, it's a yearly uh, publication that's called The Mile Post. And it has documented every campground all the way up. And it's a fantastic resource. Like even non commercial campgrounds, like just a, a camp spot? Absolutely. Well, just uh, anything that's public or anything that's a proper campground. Oh, I see. But as for camping, like camping, camping. Like wild camping, can, I guess you You can it. camp anywhere. Oh, yeah. Um, just make sure there's no no trespassing signs, which are very few, but there's a few. Uh, and you are good. Um, I've camped all over the state. And you just wheel your bike kind of down a maybe a deserted lane somewhere and then just set up your tent and you're you're good to go. Are there many opportunities for that as you go along? Are there a lot of side roads running off? 
Uh, there's not much for side roads. Uh, the only a- access roads are primarily to uh, get to the pipeline. But there are a few places here and there uh, that you can stop and you can easily uh, camp all the way up if you want. And if you wanted to camp, you can camp in Coldfoot, which is literally just a truck stop. But they have camping out back for $10 and you get a shower and, you know, you can really – you can do it on a budget um, except for in Prudhoe Bay. That, the Prudhoe Bay is not really a town. It's, it's just a bunch of um, uh, buildings that are uh, – on uh, gravel pits that are up above the floodplain of the tundra. And so there's really no real estate for you to go uh, to set up a tent. And if you do, you're on somebody's land because they're all uh, private oil servicing companies and you'll be politely asked to to leave Mm. or you will gain attention unless you uh, tuck yourself back in somewhere with the the oil – prospecting equipment somewhere or something. So is there a method that you have that you can you can go right to the end and come back and camp somewhere else or stay somewhere else so you don't run into the the expensive hotel or maybe lack of hotel at that point if it was busy? Yeah, I would consider, you know, almost doable is to start in Coldfoot or Weissman, uh, get an early start, and you could go up uh, to Prudhoe Bay, uh, take the tour. You have to call ahead. Make sure you arrange ahead. Uh, and there's... Uh, there's a place called Dead Horse Camp, uh, and if you give them a call, they'll uh, arrange that shuttle for you to the Arctic Ocean. And then you could bounce back, but you have to make about 80 miles. Uh, so you're in about 330 miles that day, uh, and you could start camping on the north side of the Brooks Range. Uh, bring your mosquito net on the north side of the Brooks Range. Oh, now you're going to throw in mosquitoes with this as well? <laughs> Well, I just remember picking up a stranded <laughs> Japanese motorcycle guy, and he was camped north of the Brooks Range, and it was uh, it was challenging for him. When you have 24 hours or almost 24 hours of sunlight, you tend to get a lot of growth, and that includes bugs, doesn't it? Uh, yes, uh, it is a nursery for those little critters up there, that's for sure. But it's worth it, right, Phil? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering about comms for the, the trip up and back. You mentioned the truckers are on 19. CBs aren't very common, obviously, for something for motorcyclists, unless you're into the, the bigger cruisers and maybe somebody's still running those. But cell services, obviously, you, wouldn't, you don't want to count on that. No, not at all. Uh, there's great cell service in Dead Horse. Uh, that is it, folks. Uh, that whole corridor, you're gonna. If you're gonna go up there, the smartest thing that you could ever bring with you that you do not want to use is a satellite phone. Um, that satellite phone will save you a bunch of time and money when you need to start making very important calls. Um, if you just rely on Providence and you go off the road and you you don't mean to, nobody does, and you need to get things services. A tow truck to the Arctic Circle from Fairbanks is to the tune of fourteen hundred dollars. Now, I've I've heard of uh, you know trucks that are coming back backhaul from Prudhoe Bay. Motorcyclists have used that resource to put their bike on the back of a truck and then have it hauled back to Fairbanks uh, Mm. for much less than that. I guess the trucks are mainly running empty. They're going up, dropping supplies, coming back empty. Absolutely. And have you tried to spot or in reach that far north? Uh, yeah, spot works. 
Okay. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with the other one. Do they have communication ability now? Yeah, InReach is the two-way communicator, so you can send text messages uh, up and back, and which we've tried and, and find very impressive. As a matter of fact, we used one for an emergency once, and it was really a huge advantage because we would have had to get search and rescue, and through this, we managed to just do our own rescue with it because it was non-life-threatening. So a great system, and, and if Spot works, InReach will because they, I think they have more coverage. They've got complete pole-to-pole. Oh, great. Great. And I, I still would uh, say that if you're going to go that far out, have a sat phone with you. As you know, communication over a phone call, you can get a lot done in a short amount of time. Well, especially when it's that remote. I mean, you press the spot help button and you're going to put somebody, somebody, family or friends through a lot of work to come and get you not knowing at all what the problem is. Whereas if you have a phone, you can quickly um, let them know what the problem is. is. Are there rentals in Fairbanks for the phones? Uh, I believe so. Yes. You can rent them in Anchorage or Fairbanks. No problem. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously most people won't want to buy the phone, but to rent it for something like that, I mean, because, you know, it could be something fairly minor, like your bike dies on you, maybe for good, maybe your engine blows or something, but at least you can arrange it properly. Whereas otherwise you might end up incurring a whole bunch more expense. Absolutely. And time. And that's what a lot of people don't have. What about repairs along the way? Uh, You need to be self-sufficient. Um, the, the nearest BMW dealer is in Fairbanks. Um, so if anything should go wrong, uh, I always, you know, make sure that you can, you know, plug your tires, uh, if you have a a puncture and then have the odds and ends of, uh, tools that just in case you can duct tape it or wire it together just to get it uh, home, uh, be self-sufficient. And are there any repair shops along the way? Uh, you know, uh, the only close. There's, there's a couple shops that you can use tools that we have in the past at Yukon Crossing. They have a garage there. And depending on the uh, mood of the mechanic and the circumstance, you can wheel a bike in there and, and work on it. Uh, they won't work on it for you. Uh, and the same thing applies to Coldfoot and also Prudhoe Bay. And in Prudhoe Bay, if you're a stranded motorcyclist, uh, it won't take you long to find the resources to, to help you because a lot of those oil workers are riders and they want to be doing what you're doing. So they'll extend a red carpet. I, I've had many stories where uh, people really needed a hand and uh, they, they, did, uh, they helped them out tremendously. And I guess that's one thing we really have to keep in mind we're doing this sort of thing is that you're a traveler, you're imposing on somebody, you really got to keep that in mind that, you know, you're the one getting the favor here because you certainly don't want to go in and start expecting just because somebody said, oh, I heard I could work on my bike here. That would be the wrong way to approach something. Absolutely. A humble yeah. Bring your humble pie with you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and the other thing to note, too, is that if you've found a place to stop and work, probably everybody else who's had a problem has stopped at the exact same spot. And that can wear a little thin after a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's more and more motorcyclists going up that road uh, more each year. Uh, and there's uh, it's becoming a, much more of a thing. So the infrastructure is being used. Uh, somebody has been there the week before and probably had a similar problem. And what's the time frame that we can run it? Now, that first week in June, I would say, is the best because it's before they start doing the road construction. Although you are, you know, running the risk of having late spring and uh, you're still going to have a little bit of snow and um, you can't have road conditions that are a little soft. 
But before all that equipment hits the uh, hits that road in about the 10th of June to the 14th of June, uh, that I think is the best time to run that thing. Uh, and you have the best weather. July and August, you can run it, no problem. But uh, you are going to get your weather fronts. Uh, the interior Alaska weather, uh, you know, is dictated by hot and cold and rainstorms, you know, from here to, the, you know, once in a while. So you will run into more weather uh, in July and August. And basically about the last week of August, you cannot run it. You could run it still, but it, you're starting to get into winter. Mm. What about Attigan Pass in the spring? Is there not a chance of snow? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you can get snow in July, any day of the year, just whatever Providence throws at you. Uh, if you go in June, you're going to be riding through avalanche debris because uh, the avalanches uh, constantly cross the road. Uh, so if <laughs> so, the best uh, you're always going to have at least one challenge awaiting you on the Dalton. Phil, thank you very much. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me. And that was Phil Freeman from MotoQuest Tours. You can look at what they've got to offer at www.motoquest.com. And you can check out the show notes for this episode, of course, all our episodes, because we've got a lot of notes in there, in particular in this one about if you're interested in running the Dalton. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on this show and have a look at the show notes. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you for listening. Hey, before I go here with this show, um, I just wanted to point out that we've now signed up for Patreon. We had a, a number of emails coming in where people were asking us if they had some way or if we had some way that we could accept monthly donations. And people even pointed out Patreon to us. So we finally got that set up. We got a reward program there with different rewards we're offering. You can check that out. We still take donations the regular way if you want to do that. We still send out stickers for it. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button button and have a look and of course you can drop by our website and listen to all of our episodes for free they're all available there with the show notes to look at for the links etc and we also have our other show ARR Raw that we just finished recording for this month should be out next week and that is a separate show completely you need to subscribe separately for it we really appreciate it thanks very much drop by our Facebook page just search for us on Facebook don't forget to like our page we'd love to see you there and make a connection my name is Jim Martin. this is Adventure Rider Radio see you next week and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 